What's up, NFL fans? Welcome back to another episode of the NFL Whip Around. I am Jeff Hartman, one of the hosts. Joining me as always is Coach KT Smith. KT, what's up? How's it going? Hey, Jeff. Uh, not doing great. Great weekend. Exciting weekend of football. Some some really interesting results to talk about. Can't wait to dive in. Yeah. It was an interesting week of football. That is a good way of putting it, and that's going to lead us right into the first topic of discussion. In case it's your first time checking the NFL whip around, look, we don't go through every game. That's what we do on Monday's show. Myself and Rob Stats Guerrero on the Fans First Football Show, we diagnose every single game that's played on Sunday. This show, we're just talking about those main storylines, and the first storyline is which team had the best win in Week 6? The Jets finding a way to be the Philadelphia Eagles or the Cleveland Browns with PJ Walker. We'll talk about him more later beating the San Francisco 49ers coach. Your take, which one was better? Yeah, those are both two really surprising results. And if you had told me going into the day that Zach Wilson and PJ Walker would be two and zero against the Eagles and 49ers, I would have lost a lot of money on that. But yeah. um, I, you know, if I have to, if the question is who had the better win, then I think it's the Browns because the, you know, while the Jets won that game, they got a huge assist from Philadelphia. I mean, yeah. the Browns were playing without Deshaun Watson, and it certainly helped that San Francisco lost Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel in that game. But I, th- I just thought the Browns' defense was fantastic, and they really made Brock Purdy look like a seventh-round draft pick. I mean, he's been pretty darn good throughout uh, the early part of his career, but with a lot of weapons at his disposal and a great offensive line, his life's been pretty easy. And now you took those, those, some of those weapons away uh, against a, a great Jets defense. And I just thought the game plan was excellent. And I really just like the fact that after the Aaron Rodgers injury, everybody wrote the Jets off. But their head coach, and he's a grinder. He's a guy that when I, when I look at that guy and I listen to him, I just think, man, he's a guy that, that, that people want to play for. Um, and that just felt like a game last night where – the Jets just wanted it more. And uh, so I think that was a really impressive win for them. Let's talk about 49ers for a second. Uh, People throw this term around a lot. And now not, let let me make this, let me preface my next statement with this. Not every team is going to have a defense of the caliber of the Cleveland Browns. They have a very good defense from top to bottom, defensive front down to the secondary. Blueprint, did Jim Schwartz provide the blueprint for the rest of the NFL to slow down at least the San Francisco 49ers? Or was this just kind of like a weird, you know, the injuries to Samuel, like you mentioned, and to Christian McCaffrey? It's just kind of one of those things. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I, th- I think that, first of all, I, th- I have a ton of respect for Jim Schwartz. I think he's a uh, an excellent coordinator who, when I've talked to guys, uh, who have either coached in the NFL or really understand defense well. He's a name that always comes up about some of the most respected defensive coordinators in the league. So obviously he's doing a great job. Uh, I mean, he's got some some tools to work with for sure. They're, uh, they're a defense, I think, that, that thrives on being able to get after the passer. And if you can do that in the NFL right now, uh, then you know obviously you, you have a recipe for success. He's aggressive and he mixes his coverages really well. And I think, again, man, that he's just provides some looks that force quarterbacks to hold the ball. And when you can when you do that and you can get after the quarterback the way that his team does, you've got it. You got an opportunity. And I mean, you know, Cleveland losing Nick Chubb and uh, they're going to they're going to struggle at times on defense for sure. I mean, on offense for sure. But uh, the defense will keep them in it. I mean, they, they've given up the least total yards through five games of any team over the last 50 years barely over a thousand total yards. And that's 
that's an average of about 200 yards per game. And I mean, if you can hold the opposing offense to about 200 yards per game, you got a shot every week. So obviously doing a great job there. Hey, and which quarterback has thrown for the most yards against the Cleveland Browns this year? Uh, that would be one Kenny Pickett has the most passing yards against the Cleveland Browns in 2020. Nice plug. I like that. Hey, you're welcome. Steel curtain. <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's go. <laughs> let's talk about scoring. You brought up scoring in the defense of the Cleveland Browns. Scoring is down this year, believe it or not. And, you know, the league seems to be doing everything that they can within their power to assist offenses. We see these rules changes, whether it's the roughing the passer calls, the hitting a defenseless receiver, both of which we saw some really egregious penalties in week six. Why do you think scoring is actually down in what looks like a pass happy high scoring NFL style that they want in 2023? It's interesting. I mean, uh, when you look at the numbers, you go back to 2020 NFL offenses averaged about 24 points per game in 2020. And last year, that number dipped down to around 22 points per game. And this year, it's actually under that. It's at like 21.8. And yeah, I was telling you before the show, out of the 14 games played uh, on, on Thursday and Sunday in the league, 12 of those games, the two teams combined for less than 40 points or less. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, the score, you rattle off the scores, 14-9, 19-17, 19-13, 17-13. You get all these low-scoring games. I'm not sure that's what the league wants, but I can tell you a couple of reasons as to why that's what they're getting. I mean, one of the biggest reasons is defensive coordinators have gotten so good at disguising coverage. It is, it's almost impossible anymore to look at a defense pre-snap and, and tell you what coverage they're going to play. I mean, there's rotating safeties and moving guys around. That's not new, but the, but the frequency with which defensive coordinators are doing it now and uh, the creativity that they're using to do it is really kind of taking defense to a new level. I, I just feel as though you really need to be, uh, as a quarterback, you really need to be an expert in, in the nuances of how a defense is going to move post-snap. And there's a lot of young quarterbacks in the league. And many of those quarterbacks are just not prepared. They're not ready for this stuff. And you see that in the passing statistics. The passing numbers are down. The yards per attempt are down. And that tells you that teams are checking the ball down and getting the ball out of quarterbacks' hands really, really quickly because those quarterbacks are confused and they don't want them holding the ball. We were just talking about that with the Browns defense. Jim Schwartz confuses quarterbacks and forces them to hold the ball, and it results in a lot of sacks. So I really just think right now the defense is it, – it's a cat and mouse game. We, we talked about for, you know a couple of years ago how offenses are now you know, the wide zones and the bootlegs and all that kind of stuff, the Shanahan's and the McVeigh's. They're ahead of the defense. Well, you know, it's always it's always a cat and mouse game, and defenses have caught up for sure. So you're an offensive guy. Play you have a hell. You're calling plays for your high school team this year, I believe. What's yep. what's the next step? So the air raid crap came through. The RPO stuff. You know the you just mentioned the Shanahan and McVeigh style. If the defense is catching up, the offense is going to evolve and they're going to change and they're going to try and again, it's a cat and mouse game. What would you think is the next step in the NFL of where the offenses are going to go to try to counteract what the defenses are doing? For me, it's to reestablish run games. I mean, I, I'm I'm a big believer that if you can run the football, it opens everything else up. And if you if you can force defenses to get out of these two high shells that they're that they're playing now, 
and and drop a safety down in the box because you're running the ball well, then you can open the passing game back up. I mean, if you want to, if you want to alleviate some of the struggles that your quarterback's having, build a strong run game. And and the NFL has gravitated to you know all this eleven personnel and spread stuff. Uh, defenses have caught up, and now I think you're going to see more NFL teams begin to go heavy again. I mean, San Francisco bases out of 12 personnel, meaning they've got two tight ends on the field or a tight end and a fullback. Uh, the Steelers are moving in that direction. The Philadelphia Eagles, shoot, the Eagles sometimes will line up with seven offensive linemen on the field. And, and I mean, they're they're just countering what defenses are doing with all these four two five packages. Defenses are putting an extra D-back on the field. So I think the next move is for offenses increasingly to get heavier and then try to throw out of those heavy packages. If you can, if you can get a team to get into like a base defense with, with like, you know, if you're a three, four team, now put those three big defense alignment on the field and remove that extra defensive back and now throw against that look. I think offenses can be successful there. It's going to be fun to watch. And the NFL definitely from a rule standpoint, like I mentioned, has done its job. It's done its part in trying to aid and assist the offense and trying to help them to be able to move the ball easier. Now, rule changes. Some people love them. Some people hate them. Some people want every play reviewed. Some people say, no, I stand kind of in the middle. Do you think the rule changes have comprised the game? Because when you think about week six, there were some really questionable calls and calls that really turn the tide in their respective games to come to mind the roughing the passer call on Josh Allen on Sunday night football against the New York giants or the non-call on Darren Waller's another one uh, at the very end of that game when the untimed down. Also you talk about the hitting a defenseless receiver penalty on Deshaun Gibson of the 49ers against, I can't remember the receiver from the Browns, but that extended their drive coach. What do you think? Do these officials even know how to call a game anymore? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a huge problem. I don't. I don't think they know how to call the game. I mean, the what's the strike zone on a quarterback, right? What's the when? When is the receiver defenseless? I heard one the NFL analyst. I think it was Terry McCauley last night trying to explain the justification for calling pass interference against Buffalo in the end zone on what would have been the last play of the game, and then on the on so that gave them the ball, the Giants, the ball at the one yard line with no time left and then not calling it on the next play, which was a more egregious penalty. I mean, yeah. the the one they did call was probably a 50, 50 call. I mean, there was definitely some contact after the five yard zone, but it's the last play of the game. And oftentimes they won't throw that flag on the last play unless it's egregious, but they did flag it. And then on the last one, the untimed down on the, the pass to Waller, the, I mean, the, the safety is clearly restricting his ability to get his his left arm up, right? And he's got to try to make a one-handed catch. I mean, that's that's a clear call to me, and they don't call it. And Terry McCauley was trying to go into this thing about like, well, if the ball's in the air, it's it's one type of one type of interpretation, and if it's not in the air, it's another. That's gibberish to me. They don't know what they're what they're calling. And then the one on Gibson, Tayshawn Gibson, you mentioned in the San Francisco game, that was Elijah Moore the receiver for Cleveland. That was a okay. huge call, man. It was it was third and 10. San Francisco's winning 17-16. There's a little more than two minutes left. Cleveland's got third and 10 deep in their own territory. And it's a clean, a clean as clean can be. He did everything that you're taught as a defender now to, to not lead with the helmet, to not hit to up high, to not launch yourself. You have to hit with the shoulder. You can only hit him in the midsection. He did everything textbook perfectly right. And they still flagged him. 
And then that extended the drive and then Cleveland goes down and they kick a field goal and they, and they end up winning. And it's like, you know, I, I feel bad for the refs to be quite honest. It's happening so fast. And, and, you know, they're, they're essentially taught, like, if you, if you think it's a flag, throw it, but how do you play defense? I mean, how do you, what, what in that situation was Tayshawn Gibson supposed to do? I, I don't know. The judgment call of a pass interference play, I I almost say like, look, it's a, it's a judgment call. It's exactly what it is. And unless we want to re replay every single potential play, which will, I think, make games ridiculously long and you're going to question everything, I don't want to go down that road. I understand there's going to be mistakes and there's going to be questions about those. But it's the, the plays that I watch it and say that's unfair. Like, that's unfair. You just brought it up. What is Gibson supposed to do? What The receiver who's going over the middle knows he's going to get hit. So he in, inherently kind of shells up. He's trying to protect himself. Now, all of a sudden, it's a hard hit, and it looks like he hits him in the head. It's a bang-bang play. I guess for me, I go back to the Steelers against the Raiders on Sunday Night Football. Cole Holcomb hits Devontae Adams really hard over the middle on a high pass from Jimmy Garoppolo. And what do the officials do? The flag gets thrown. Everyone's pissed. They get together. They talk about it, and they say, we're going to pick it up. They didn't even have that discussion in Cleveland. That's what kind of drives me crazy. There was never another official that said, well, wait a second. Can we, let's hold on before we call this penalty. I don't know what defenders are supposed to do. The roughing the passer call on Josh Allen was another one. And you go back to that same Raiders Steelers game when they threw the flag on Minka Fitzpatrick, when he hit Jimmy Garoppolo, like what, what are they supposed to do? Like unless they eat, I'm, I'm at the point where I think even if they shove them with two hands, like two hand touch forcefully, they would still potentially get called for roughing the passer. It seems unfair for a defender. I don't know how they fix it. I don't know if there is an easy fix, but I will say this. It seems as if the NFL, anytime there's a really hard hit, they want to take it out of the game. So they're going to flag it. They're going to flag it because of the, the years of concussion issues and the lawsuit and all this stuff. They're going to flag it just because, hey, if it looks bad, the, one, the hits that were once celebrated, Coach, on Jacked Up, the Monday Night Countdown segment, is now trying to be deemed atrocious in the game of football. I don't know. I don't get it. Is there a fix? That's a question for you. I just wonder if they can, if they can do, like, rather than stop the game, you know, have the red flag come out to challenge it. I mean, can, can they just have a guy in the, in the command center in New York, wherever it is, who just quickly reviews it and says, like, if you quickly reviewed that Tayshawn Gibson hit, you'd be, you'd say, that's not a flag. And he quickly looks at it and he radios down and they, and you know, within 10 seconds, they probably 15 seconds, they probably have uh, that call corrected. Or the ones where, like, the one that makes me insane is where they flag a defender for roughing the passer because they say he landed on the quarterback with his body weight. I mean, do you, how in the <laughs> world are you supposed to tackle the quarterback and then, as in in the in the split second that you're going to the ground, redirect yourself so you don't land with all your body weight on the quarterback? That's just yeah. football, man. I mean, like, that's that can happen to anybody in any situation, and and it just it just it, you can't take the hitting out of the game. You can't take the physicality out of the game. You're going to have injuries. It's the nature of the beast. So I don't know if there's a fix based upon where the NFL wants to go with all this. The NFL was worried about optics, right? They don't want the concussions. They don't want those really hard hits. But the problem is, is now the optics are turning into something way worse, in my opinion. And that is where it looks like the integrity of the game is being removed. It looks as if people are questioning Holy cow, you never call these on the Chiefs. Like, what's going on?
when the Chiefs player is yelling at an official with his helmet off, and the official's like, "Hey, man, put your helmet on so we don't flag you." <laughs> what is that? Like, that's not a, that's not it either. Like, T.J. Watt game winning, game sealing sack on Lamar Jackson takes his helmet off, they flag it right away, and it's a penalty that's in the rule book. Now the optics in the NFL are, are switching from those super, super safe to now it's super, super fishy. Like there's some stuff going on. I don't know. I'll have to bring that up with my boy Pez, your boy Pez on our Pez's well, picks this I, week. I get it with the Chiefs because, I mean, Taylor Swift. Exactly. We all, we all want more of Tay-Tay. So, you know, they're going to well, get the no, calls. Not all of us. Not all of us want more <laughs> Tay-Tay. We'll say that. <laughs> All right, let's talk about a team that's really struggling right now, but they did find a way to win the Vikings. They won on Sunday, but they find themselves in a hole behind the Lions, the 5-1 and one Detroit Lions in the NFC North. And, hey, this is not breaking news. They're going to be without Justin Jefferson, who just got put on injured reserve prior to this week. So you see that trade deadline looming. There are these teams that are being compiled that like, could be sellers. Uh, the Chicago Bears are one of them. And you think about you know someone like the Vikings, now, Kirk Cousins came out before the game, I think it was this past Sunday, and said he's not going to waive the no-trade clause that he has in his contract. But are you seeing some of these teams, like the Minnesota Vikings, potentially fielding calls about a Kirk Cousins to see what they could get for him? Sure. I, I think they'd be crazy not to, right? You have to take the phone calls. Um, it's interesting. Marquee quarterback, I don't know if we call Cousins a marquee quarterback, but he's a good, sure. solid starting quarterback. Uh they, they don't get traded in season. I mean, there, there just hasn't been a, a big trade involving uh, a, a high-profile quarterback in a long time. I mean, if you want to count Jimmy Garoppolo from when he went from New England yeah. out to the West Coast, maybe. But um, but if you're Minnesota and and you look at where you are right now and you don't believe that you can compete and you and you probably realize that you're going to part ways with Cousins after the season anyway, and a team like the Jets – who everybody wrote off as being, you know, hey, their their season's done. But now here they are back to three and three, and which puts you in the thick of the wild card hunt in the AFC. And their defense is built to win now. And they might say, hey, you know, we can't get there with Zach Wilson, regardless of what happened yesterday. They won, you know, they won with their defense. But uh, but maybe with Kirk Cousins we can get there, and then and then let's take our chances because right now, I mean, Buffalo is four and two, but they almost lost to the Giants. They looked awful last night, and almost or Sunday night, and yeah. almost lost to the Giants. Kansas City has not looked great. Cincinnati has not looked great. Everybody thought those would be the three best teams. Miami is maybe the best team in the AFC right now, but the Jets have to feel pretty good about their chances against Miami, given the division rivalry and all that. If you're the Jets, you probably don't feel like you're that far away from being able to take a run at the AFC. So if if they called Minnesota and made a, a strong offer, I think the Vikings would be crazy not to listen. Well, let's just go into the assumption that Kirk Cousins, who do, he does have a no trade clause in his contract. Let's say he waives that. He goes, fine, you all want to trade me? Well, you can trade me. What are the Jets willing to give up? And what are the Vikings going to get in return? Because I don't think the Vikings, I don't know what their depth chart is. I don't think they have like a starter waiting in the wings. I don't think they have a Jordan Love type that was behind Aaron Rodgers. It's like, well, okay, well, if we trade Aaron Rodgers, we have Jordan Love. He might not have turned out to be what they hoped, but still he's a first round draft pick. I don't know if they have that. And so you have to think about the Vikings. Okay, so let's say they do. Let's say they are big time sellers and they trade away Kirk Cousins are they going to be in a position to get a quarterback next year? And they're going to be starting over. And they do have Justin Jefferson, who's not going to be happy without a, a decent quarterback at the helm. 
and they're going to have to pay him big time money as well. And then you think about the jets, what do they do with Aaron Rodgers' contract? Cause he's going to be back next year, I believe. And so that's, that's going to be really interesting. I think if I'm a betting man, no one moves. I, cause like you said, it just doesn't happen. Marquee names, even big names. They just don't get moved. I think there are some teams that are going to be big time sellers. I'll give you one. And this is if the current trends continue. I can see the Tennessee Titans being a big time seller, not Tannehill, but Hey, Deandre Hopkins, you need a wide receiver. How much you want to give up Derek Henry? Could they maybe who would they go to? I don't know. That would be interesting, but I could see the Titans being potential sellers. I already talked about the bears. Uh, it's going to be interesting for sure to see how that goes. The trade any other teams that you would think would be sellers at the deadline. Yeah, I, I don't, I agree with that. I don't think cousins is going to move. I just I think it's a a something Minnesota's got to entertain. The guy on, yeah. on Minnesota who could move though is Denell Hunter, uh, yep. because he's yeah he, he wasn't happy about his contract situation before the season. They 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 did manage to sign him, but uh, he's probably gone. I think I'm pretty sure he got a one year deal. He's probably gone after the season. Uh, he's a marquee name and a, a guy who could help a contender. I mean, if you are struggling to get after the passer and you just feel like a guy like that is. Uh, uh, the piece that you might need for your defense, you might be willing to pony up some good draft picks. So he's probably more like the move than, than yeah. cousins is. Uh, it's, it's interesting, man. You're now like starting to see the teams like jockey for position uh, in the league, but it's hard this year because of so much parity. There is no, yeah. there, well, I shouldn't say no, but there are very few teams that are separating themselves from the pack. There's a lot of teams in the mix there and that might, that might induce some of those teams to get a little more aggressive at the trade deadline. Speaking of team that's separating themselves from the pack in the wrong way, it's the Carolina Panthers. They remain winless and they are the last winless team. And at the same time, the 72 dolphins were popping their champagne <laughs> on Sunday when the 49ers and Eagles both were dealt their first loss of the season. So it brings up the question, what's most likely to happen first, a team going 17 and zero? or another winless 0-17 team? What do you think, Coach? I, I think we'll see an 0-17 team. I, I don't know if it'll be Carolina this year, but 17-0 and 0 in the modern NFL, given the way that the schedule is, given the, the fact that there's so much parity in the league, that's such a grind. The coaching is so good in the NFL. Like, you know, all Steeler fans are now bashing Matt Canada, and they're, and they're, they're, now, they're now holding up fire Matt Canada signs in other stadiums, you know, <laughs> there, there was one in <laughs> Buffalo yesterday, you know, like, but, but I think one of the reasons Matt Canada has struggled is that he was a successful college coordinator who, when he got to the NFL, some of the schemes that he was, was really good at and that he'd employed are, are fairly easy for NFL coordinators to defend you in the NFL. It's such a matchup driven league. Canada's schemes were oftentimes about tricking teams, or, you know, fooling them with all the motion and the, and the shifting and all those types of things. You're not going to fool NFL coordinators. You have to, you got to get your best guys into matchups against their worst guys. You got to figure out how to manipulate that. And on a, on a weekend and weekend out basis, that's really hard to do. As we were talking about earlier in the show, it's one of the reasons why scoring's down. It's one of the reasons why an offense like the Rams can be ex so explosive one year. And then two years later, that offense just looks ordinary because coordinators catch up so fast. So to go 17 and 0, you got to be both a 
really talented, like more talented than, than just about any other roster in the league. And then B, you've got to be able to out scheme teams on a week in week out basis. And the last team that could do that were like the, the Belichick Patriots. And what was that? What was the year they had that run? 2008, 2009, something like that. I when they went 17 and 0. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those. seven, maybe right in that, right in that area. Mm-hmm. And that was an unbelievably talented team with a ridiculously good coaching staff. And I, I just think it's easy. It's probably easier to be bad, really bad than it is to be really great. Do you think the Carolina Panthers win a game this season? I do. I think they'll win a game because they're in a, they're in a division. That's not that good. They're in a conference that's not that good. I mean, I can see, you know, Atlanta, who I thought would be a little bit better than, than they are. I mean, Matt, you know, they may, they may bench Desmond Ritter, you know, they may go to Taylor Heineke and then maybe he gives him a jolt for a week or two, but you know, he's going to have a stinker of a game at some point. Maybe that yeah. game comes in Carolina where the Panthers are kind of geeked up for that one. There's, you know, you can, I can see them winning a football game. Okay. I, I don't know. I, this is, I, I don't think each polar points here would be likely anymore. I, I think that because you said the parody, you talk about the divisional play. I think every team is going to find a way to win a game or two. And I don't think anyone's going to go undefeated anytime soon. I think the answer is that the NFL wants that parody. They, they want the teams to be really, really close. I want to bring up something that we, we said we were going to talk about. I was texting you over the weekend and I want to add it into the, the, the show list here real quick. And that is coaching. And do you think that the game passes coaches by as you see coach like Sean Payton, who just looks, I don't know. It's, it's so weird that when you watch those teams, it doesn't look like a Sean Payton led team. You look at Bill Belichick really struggling. Uh, Some would even say Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh. There are times where it looks like maybe his game is geared more towards the early two thousands and not 2023. Do you think that's a thing? If you're a coach, do you ever feel like, man, I'm I'm not sure. Like the game is just changing so much or, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? I'd love to get your take. Yeah. I mean, personally, I love the changes because it keeps you fresh. You, yep. you just keep learning. And all these guys have such a brilliant understanding of the X and O's. I don't think that's the area where, where they tend to fall behind. I mean, granted, there are a lot of younger coordinators in the league now who are bringing some fresh eyes uh, to the, to the game. But, but in that, you know, I think the experienced coaches, know how to how to scheme it up i think the area where they where they lose their edge is with their ability to motivate players their their message their the way that they deal with guys like i look at sean payton and i think he's a bill parcells disciple and bill parcells was you know when we say old school now you know we're referring back to like the 1980s the 1990s it was a different world then you know i mean bill parcells used to motivate players by publicly demeaning them I mean, he, he would publicly refer to Elvis Patterson, a, a cornerback for the Giants, as Toast. He nicknamed him Toast because he was always getting burned. He would he would call Terry Glenn in New England. He would refer to her as she in the public. Can you imagine if you did that today? I mean, oh there, that, that is not a thing you can do you know, today. <laughs> and Sean Payton is of that world. And he came into Denver and he he kind of like burned it down, man. He he. He got into it with Russell Wilson. He got into it with Nathaniel Hackett, the old head coach. You know, he basically said, like, it's going to be my way or the highway. It's going to be this old school approach. I just don't know if some of the younger players respond to that anymore. So I think for a lot of the older coaches, you have to continue to find a way to relate uh, to a new generation of players. And I think that's where they struggle. It is weird though. I mean, the, the the Belichick thing is is really confusing to me. Sean Payton in a new team, I get it. Bill Belichick, I mean, 
this guy's been there forever and he's always been the same style and he's done it with way worse coordinators than he has now. And they, they look lost. They look unprepared and it's not all the quarterback either. Like their defense isn't even playing. And that's used to be the calling card. Like, well, you know, Belichick's going to have a good defense. They don't even have that anymore. It's really, really odd to me. And I don't think, like you said, that the game ever passes someone by, but the players responding to you and responding to the way you coach, it can. And I do think there's something to hearing the same voice over and over again. This is something Bill Cowher spoke openly about at his end, at his time, his tenure was coming up with the Steelers before he retired. He said he felt like the message was just getting lost. And when you think about it, Bill Cowher using him as an example, his whole career was spent striving. I got to get that one for the thumb. Got to get that one for the thumb. And then when they finally do in 2005, I have a feeling, and, and he talked about this in his book, it was kind of like, well, what now? Like, what do I do now? Like, if this has always been about that that search for that one thing, they finally get it, and then it's kind of, I don't know, interesting stuff. Just wanted to bring that well, up. And, you know, real quick, I mean, it, you also think about this. Bill Belichick is 71, almost 72 years old. He's coaching guys that are 24, right? He's coaching guys that could be his grandchildren. And oh. how much of a... You know, how much of a rapport does he have with them anymore? How much of an, an ability to relate? And I think that that is a big part of motivating it, too. I mean, he may be a genius X and O wise, but if you can't teach it in a way that, uh, you know, your players can both digest, uh, execute, be enthusiastic about, et cetera. And also, you I've noticed this, man. <laughs> now, granted, I'm I'm comparing, right, like pro coaches, et cetera. But I know I notice the difference when I, when I'm coaching my the, our high school team, and then I go down and coach my ten year olds team. I struggle with I struggle with patience, but, you know, because they're ten, and like yeah. I was just coaching kids that have a pretty good idea about what's going on, and now this kid like can't get into a stance, right? Or you know he's like smacking another kid, and I have to like constantly be like stop smacking him, get in your stance, and I don't have the patience for it. And you think <laughs> about Bill Bill uh, Bill Belichick, he coached Tom Brady for forever. And Tom Brady could see and do just about anything on a football field. And Belichick was probably able to coach at a level that for him was very rewarding because he could he could basically throw everything he'd learned about the game at Tom Brady and Tom Brady could do it. And now he's got a whole different crew and he's got to sort of dumb it down in a way or he's got to, te- he's got to teach it at maybe a level that's beneath where he was teaching it. I mean, it's, it's, it's possible he's either – not that good now at, at kind of regressing in that regard, or he's just gotten bored with it. That's very possible. Do you think that with some of these coaches, like the three that we mentioned, I don't think Tomlin falls into this criteria because he still is very much a player's coach and players like playing for him. Do you think that the mystique wears off? Like someone like Bill Belichick, you know, all those Super Bowl rings is impressive, but do you think that there's a time where the players like Danny, he's just another guy like his first Super Bowl. Yeah. I was like five. Yeah. <laughs> You know, oh, I absolutely think that that's a thing. All right. Let's wrap this up with a player profile. One that you want to talk about today is a winning quarterback on Sunday. The guy that probably had the most remarkable win, and that's PJ Walker, quarterback of the Cleveland hmm. Browns. Coach, your player profile. Go for it. <laughs> well, yeah, man. We bring him up because you said a couple weeks ago that uh when I when we were talking about Isaiah Pacheco that you like those stories and not the, the Travis yeah. Kelsey Taylor Swift stories. So absolutely one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so let's let's you know, let's give a little love to another guy who just the whole again, PJ Walker 
winning that football game, beating the 49ers is just such a remarkable thing when you consider like his journey. I mean, here's a guy, his background, he grows up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, goes to Elizabeth High School. That is one of the toughest just urban centers in America. That's a that's a tough place to grow up, man. Not a lot of people make it out of Elizabeth. And then he he goes to Temple, which is no no quarterback factory. He's an undrafted free agent who uh, in you know 2017 catches on with Indy, and he's there for a couple of years. But then he then he goes to the XFL, and he's like the MVP of the XFL, right? So he kind of gets his that's his springboard back into the NFL, and he comes back in, and he's with Carolina and the Bears. And he winds up with the Browns. And he's like his you look at his numbers in his career. I mean, his NFL numbers, he's got like five touchdowns and 12 interceptions and like a 55 percent completion percentage. Um, and the numbers are, are, are bad by NFL metrics. But he's just a guy that like keeps showing up and keeps grinding. You watch him on the sidelines. He's like enthusiastic. Like he's a guy he's making the most of his shot, man. He's he's firing up his teammates. He's doing everything he can to stick in the league. And for a 5'11", 210-pound quarterback that's not overwhelmingly gifted in any area, to be able to have stuck around as long as he he has is just a tribute to, like, the desire that so many of these guys have to play. They love, you know, how badly they want to be in the NFL, how much it means to them. I think you can see that through a guy like P.J. Walker. So for him to knock off the 49ers uh, is just an awesome story, even though he's on the Browns. Yeah, <laughs> It is an awesome story, and, you know, if PJ Walker never wins another game in the NFL, if he never even gets another start in the National Football League, Browns fans will always remember that win. Always. They might call it the PJ Walker game. Hey, remember that time that PJ Walker beat the 49ers? I'll give you an example. Longtime backup for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Charlie Batch. When I say Charlie Batch, is there one game that pops out in your head? I want to see if it's the same one as me. Beating the Baltimore Ravens, right? You know, Charlie Batch beat the Ravens. Stadium. Exactly. Yeah. That might be yeah. his crowning achievement was that one game, that one start that fans will still talk about 10 years later and say, remember that one time that PJ Walker at home in the rain? I don't care how it happened, but he beat the undefeated San Francisco 49ers, especially if the 49ers were to say, go on and win the Super Bowl this year. Remember that yeah. time PJ Walker beat the 49ers? It's, it's pretty remarkable. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool story for sure. Yeah. For sure, yeah. I'm. I'm a, I was. I was happy to see that he got. He a guy's got a like a megawatt smile, and he just looked like the happiest guy on earth yesterday. He got his moment. Everyone deserves their moment. He had his on Sunday for sure. So good stuff. Thanks for sharing that story and that information, Coach. Hey, that wraps up our show for the NFL Whip Round, Coach. Tell us what's coming up on the call sheet and where they can find you on social media. Yeah, so on uh, on Twitter at KT Smith FFSN and uh, the call still. So my call sheet this week is is going to be a little inspired a little bit by by PJ Walker, and uh, it's going to be it's going to focus on underdogs, right? What are some of the good good underdog stories in the NFL so far this year? Some of the guys who may be under the radar or guys having great years that are unexpected. So you know that's that'll be a good conversation. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. And next week we will be back for another episode of the NFL whip round. If you want to follow my work on the steel curtain network, find me anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the Pittsburgh Steelers or on Twitter at J Hartman, H A R T M A N underscore P I T coach. Thanks for your time. We'll talk next week. See you later. Thank you.